Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. Under the radar means hearing about things you didn't know you needed to know until you hear them. It's a serious look. To hear about the issues that don't get the attention they deserve. Under the radar doesn't get caught up in the day-to-day. Surfacing issues that are not talked about in mainstream media. I think it's something that connects us to each other. Under the radar is all about discovery. I can be guaranteed voices I haven't heard before. But also the questions. Under the radar is one step ahead. I'm Callie Crossley. This week, an encore edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. Breakfast is the most important meal of the day, especially for students. Beginning each school day with a belly full of a nutritious morning meal is linked to better performance overall. And yet, Massachusetts is ranked 33rd in the nation when it comes to school breakfast. But a bill passed and signed by Governor Charlie Baker this August seeks to change that by requiring schools to offer breakfast right after the bell rings. We talked about the need for the bill last November when it was first introduced. Later in the show, on June 2, 1863, two Union ships stole up the Cumbie River and liberated over 750 slaves. It was the first major U.S. military operation led by a woman, American abolitionist and spy Harriet Tubman. Her story written anew. But first, joining me in the studio, Erin McAleer, president of Project Bread, a Massachusetts-based anti-hunger not-for-profit. Hello, Erin. Hi, Callie. Thanks for having me. I'm delighted to have you. And Andy Vargas, Massachusetts State Representative for the 3rd Essex District and co-sponsor of the Breakfast After the Bell Bill. Welcome, Representative Vargas. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. I'm really happy to talk to you about this, and I'm going to start with you, Rep. Vargas. Last week, the House, or two weeks ago, actually, the House uh, unanimously passed the Breakfast After the Bell Bill, of which you are a co-sponsor. Give me a sense of what that bell of what that bill is all about. It's so. funny. It's a bell, but there's a bill, but there's breakfast. <laughs> yeah. You know, you get hung up there. Um, so essentially what we're looking to do with this bill is very simple, and it's just feed more kids and get kids prepared to learn. Um, we just passed a historic education uh, funding bill, but what we recognize in the House is that unless kids are fed and ready to learn, we can have all the other conditions in place, but if a child is hungry, they're not going to be able to learn. And so that's why uh, in the House last week uh, we passed breakfast after the bill on a bipartisan, unanimous basis. Uh, to ensure that we're feeding more kids in the Commonwealth. We rank 33rd amongst all the states uh, in terms of low-income breakfast participation rates, which means that our low-income kids aren't taking advantage of the free breakfast that's available to them. And so the evidence is clear on breakfast after the bell. We've seen it implemented in multiple districts uh, the past couple of years, thanks in part uh, to the help and leadership of Project Bread, which has helped implement uh, uh, breakfast after the bell in several districts, including mine in Haverhill, where we saw one school jump from 42% breakfast participation to 85%. And so think about that, double the amount of kids in one school are eating now. And so the evidence is clear and um, it just made fiscal, educational, and moral sense to get this done. So let me unpack a little bit of what you said, which is there is breakfast available for some of the kids that need it, but yet they can't access it. Talk to me about that. Yeah, so there are multiple reasons and barriers why kids don't take advantage of the, that opportunity that's available to them. Number one, it could be transportation, uh, where some kids lack the transportation to get to school early, uh, to be able to head to the cafeteria before that first bell uh, rings. Uh, number two, it could be the stigma, right? The fact that you have to 
quote unquote, show up early and be with the poor kids, quote unquote, uh, that have to show up to school early to have breakfast. And so there's a stigma associated with that. Uh, if you remove that and ensure that kids can have breakfast in the classroom, it's more of a community setting and, fe- and people feel more comfortable to be amongst their peers. So Aaron McAleer, how does the breakfast after the bell bill fix that, those two, or address those two issues? Yeah, just building off of what Representative Vargas said, moving breakfast to after the bell, it seems like maybe a small change, but it really is a monumental change that ensures that more students are eating breakfast. The reason that the legislation is so critically important is, as the representative alluded to, Project Bread for almost 25 years, our approach has been going school to school, district by district to convince them to provide breakfast after the bell. And certainly a number of communities, including Haverhill, have decided to do it of their own volition. This legislation is critical because it mandates schools where over 60 percent of kids are eligible for free and reduced price lunch to do it. So we shift our work from convincing them why to do it and showing them how to do it. So, again, just to clear up everything, There is breakfast that some could take advantage of. They haven't been able to for some of the reasons that Rep. Vargas mentioned. And after the bell has special meaning. I don't assume that people hear that and know what that means. So... If it's been there, wasn't it after the bell already? What? What? So explain, please. Yeah. So yeah. So it's a great question. Um, so there is the, the National School Breakfast Program. So breakfast is provided by the federal government, very similar to school lunch. Um, the critical change is making it part of the school day. So lunch is during the school day, and that's why there's high participation. Prior um, to this legislation, a lot of schools were providing breakfast, but in the morning before school started, uh. and so kids were missing it. Um, so this legislation requires it to be after the day has begun after the bell has rung. So all kids are there. They're ready to get their day started and and they start it with breakfast. And it's not that they're, you know, just cavalierly missing it. They can't get there or parents can't get them there. Yeah. Buses are late Mm -hmm. and parents have multiple drop offs or as the representative alluded to, there's stigma associated with having it in the cafeteria before school begins. So, Erin, I want you to just underscore this. So that would mean then that there are a number of students and I think the bill is supposed to help about 100,000 students in 700 schools or kids who get the free and reduced lunch, and that's the last meal they have until the next day at lunch, presumably, if they don't get that breakfast. Yeah, I mean, I think that most of the kids hopefully are eating dinner at mm-hmm. home. But um, assuming that they eat dinner at home, we can um, and they get to school in the morning and they don't have breakfast, then they're starting their courses um, early in the morning after having not eaten for over 14 hours. And and we all know how we function when we don't have food in our system. And so expecting students to learn and to excel without food um, for over 14 hours is, is what we're trying to address. I just mentioned that because we know that for a lot of students, that really is their last meal. They're mm-hmm. not having dinner. So. Right. So the, the the food provided at school is quite significant in their lives. It yeah. is. If, if a student, a low-income student, has both breakfast and lunch, that's over 55% of their daily calories. Okay. Um, so now, Andy, the House passed the bill. That's the, the body that you sit in. And so it's scheduled to go to the Senate. There's a bipartisan group of people supporting it. Is there any pushback or... When do we expect it to move along? No, and in fact, the Senate has been supportive in the past, so we anticipate um, that they're going to take that up uh, in the new year. Uh, that's our hope. Um, but uh, there hasn't been any pushback. I think the most beautiful thing about this is that, you know, it, it as I mentioned earlier, it makes educational sense. It makes nutritional sense. But even on the fiscal side of things, this is a program that is reimbursed by the federal government. And some districts that have implemented it have not only been revenue neutral, but actually been revenue positive and generated mm-hmm. revenue from this program that they've been able to invest in other areas. And so that's how we've built broad consensus on this, and we hope that um, the Senate takes it up as soon as they can. I just, again, I have to just repeat things because we don't want to come out of here confused. That means there is money 
and that not, some of the districts that may have the schools where the kids are neediest do not have to come out of their already limited budget. That's this right. is reimbursed. They just have to provide the circumstances by which the kids can access it. That's right. And that's why yeah. we put it for districts that have uh, 60% or more economically disadvantaged students because the numbers really make sense there. Um, and Haverhill's at 55, 56%. So even in Haverhill, it made financial fiscal sense. So if there are folks that aren't convinced just on the merits of the nutritional and educational values, there's a, there's a fiscal argument to be made here as well. I think most people hearing this would, you know, want to have kids who don't get anything to eat to have breakfast and lunch if that's available to them uh, through this system. But I don't think that everybody understands that this is documented now by researchers and scientists to be a direct link to kids' inability to function. Erin, can you talk about that? Yeah, I mean, you know, breakfast is the most important meal of the day. Somebody's hungry, struggles to function. And so what we know is, as an example, kids that consistently eat breakfast at school are 20 percent more likely to graduate from high school. Wow. We know that their math scores are significantly higher. We know that they go to the nurse's office less. In fact, nurses are often one of the school community members who are most thrilled by this because they recognize students are coming into their offices um, hungry and, and looking for crackers because they have a belly ache. So yes, the, the educational, economic, and health outcomes um, over the long term are all positive when students have breakfast. Um, Andy, do you want to add to that? Yeah, no, I think I, I would just say that the evidence is, is pretty clear, uh, particularly on attendance, right? Um, the attendance numbers do go up in districts that have implemented breakfast after the bell. We're seeing that in Haverhill as well. The schools that have implemented it, their attendance rates have gone up uh, because students know that even if they might not make it there before the bell, uh, that they still have that meal to look forward to after the bell, which then also has ripple effects on academic test scores, et cetera. But I think, you know, the bottom line is that across Massachusetts, only 39% of low-income students that are eligible for these meals are actually getting access to them. Mm. That means that the majority of eligible low-income students aren't taking advantage of free meals that are available to them, and we can boost those numbers with this bill. If you're just tuning in, this is a special encore edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and here with me are Project Bread's Erin McAleer and Massachusetts State Representative Andy Vargas. They were advocating for a bill introduced last November that would require all schools to offer breakfast after the bell. A note to listeners, Governor Baker signed the bill into law this August. Now, we've discussed that after the bell means within the school body. How do students actually then get the breakfast? Yeah, so Project Bread works with schools to really determine what model is most appropriate for them. And I would say even by classroom. So, you know, with younger students, we often find breakfast in the classroom is is the best model and kind of doing it during homeroom. With middle school or high school students, there's a um, model called grab and go where we have a cart right outside the classroom and students can just grab something and bring it into the classroom and eat. With high school students, we often use a later cafeteria model. So it's still as part of the school day, but it's when high school students are really waking up and ready to eat, and it's more of a mid-morning breakfast. So there's lots of different ways to do it. Project Bread is here to support districts in deciding what model is best for them. We will also give them grants to purchase equipment to make that model work um, and, and help them every step of the way. And in fact, you've been working with schools for more than 20 years, Project yes. Bread. Yeah. yeah. So how do you reduce the stigma now? Because both of you mentioned that, you know, some kids were a little afraid of showing up uh, if they could get to school before being stigmatized as the poor kids. But if the meal is in the classroom, wouldn't they still be stigmatized because the meal's coming into the classroom? Because every single kid in the school is eating it. Ah, 
Mm-hmm. Okay, yes. that that needs to be explained. <laughs> I see. All right. Yeah. Okay. Um, and then there, so we don't know who needs and who whatever. Right. Um, and it, presumably, if the meal is offered to a kid and he's or she is full, correct. So that's fine. Right. Uh, we don't waste the food, but but right. nobody knows other than that. Exactly. Okay. All right. How do we talk about stigma in general, Rep. Vargas? Because I have emblazoned in my mind now uh, these scenes from cafeterias uh, with regard to the free lunch program where kids are having their lunch either thrown into the trash or snatched back from them because their parents could not pay the few dollars to make sure that they could get their meal that day. I mean, cafeteria workers have been fired for making sure those kids ate. It's it's um, and you watch this and you think. How, how, how can anybody do that? I, I mean, how can anybody—but it's happening, and it's still happening. In fact, there were—and uh, I can't remember the state now because I did a story about it. There's a state where uh, uh, a very wealthy person said, you know, enough of that. I will pay for all right. of the lunches, and the school district would not take the money. <laughs> I mean, this is yeah. makes me crazy. Absolutely. I mean, and there <laughs> wasn't something that we um, sort of addressed in this bill per se, uh, the meal debt shaming aspect of it, but that's another bill that I have filed as well to— to uh, ban meal debt shaming across the Commonwealth. There are still some districts that uh, are allowed to refer uh, meal debts to the DA, to DCF. To the uh, district attorney? Yeah, yeah, to debt collectors. Some districts actually give it to debt collectors, and then that accrues interest uh, on the debt that parents have, right? And so it is a very serious issue. And us as lawmakers, we know that kids already have all sorts of bullying and stigma issues themselves. The best that we can do is ensure that we're setting the conditions so that that the system and the culture that we establish with the laws and legislation that we have in place don't feed that stigma, right? So the very least we can do is ensure that every single kid can eat and that their meal debt doesn't prevent them from from having a a hot meal. Um, And so we're optimistic that, you know, Breakfast After the Bell is is one step forward on school uh, nutrition, a huge step forward thanks to the leadership of folks like Project Bread, um, and that hopefully we can build on this with banning meal debt shaming uh, as well in the Commonwealth. So um, the other part that I think is very interesting, and I, I've ended up into some, you know, raised voices conversations with people about this. There are a lot of people that just do not believe that many people are hungry in Massachusetts. You know, they look at Massachusetts economy. It's doing pretty well. There's a lot of, they, if you, from their vantage point, it feels like there's a lot of access. Um, please talk about, you know, your experience. This is your whole world of dealing with hunger, both for adults and children. But what do you see? What do you know that you can say to people now? This is happening, and it's happening in huge numbers. Yeah, it, it is, unfortunately. And I, I recognize it's hard to believe in, in Massachusetts and the wealth, one of the wealthiest states and one of the wealthiest nations in the entire world. But it's it's one in 11 households and one in nine children. And and the root causes it really are, it's, it's a, Massachusetts is a very expensive place to live, and wages just haven't kept pace. So um, f- people are working. That's a stigma that people often assume that those who are food insecure are not say working. Say that again, because this is part of my raised voice conversation. <laughs> I say this all they the time. People are, are working. working. They are working. So somebody making minimum wage would have to work 80 hours a week to afford a two-bedroom apartment anywhere in our state. That is not just Boston. Anywhere in our state, you have to work 80 hours a week to afford a two-bedroom. And the reality is most Americans don't have $500 for an unexpected expense. So a car breaks down, a leaky roof, whatever it might be, um, and those individuals suddenly find themselves struggling to pay the bills. And unfortunately, food is one of the last bills to be paid because it's not mandatory. You have to pay your rent because you're going to get evicted. You have to pay your heating bills because Massachusetts has cold winters. And at the end of the month, 
people struggle to put food on the table. And and what is challenging is you can't look at somebody and see that they're food insecure. And in fact, Callie, I was on your show a year ago and I talked about my own experience of food insecurity growing up as a child. And a neighbor came up to me afterwards and said, I had no idea. Wow. Because you just don't know what's going on in a household and families struggling to pay the bills and food becoming something that is just not affordable. And Representative Varkas, when we say that Massachusetts is 33rd in the nation for free breakfast now, that sounds horrible. But what exactly does that mean? Yeah, so what essentially it means is that when you look at the total number of low-income kids that are eligible for free breakfast, and you look at how many of them actually take advantage of that free breakfast, Massachusetts ranks 33rd in terms of participation, right? So other states do a better job of ensuring that their low-income kids are eating breakfast to start the day. So that's that's what that number means. And to Aaron's point, um, you know, last week I was, um, this weekend actually, was handing out turkeys with United Way and Emmaus House, the homeless shelter in, in, in Haverhill. And I would say every other person that we handed out a turkey to and food to was somebody that I knew that was working, mm-hmm. right? They were working a full-time job. Uh, they had kids. They uh, were active uh, participants in our community. And it wasn't, you know, folks think that it's just all homeless people mm-hmm. which deserve a meal as well. Uh, but it's it's everybody, right? This, this food insecurity is touching all uh, walks of life. And I think it's something that we have to take seriously here in the Commonwealth as well. Or worse, they think it's people who are kind of grifters who are, for yeah. whatever reason, standing in line just to scam the system out of a free food. When, as we've discussed, if you think the stigma is, you know, kids struggle with it, adults do too. It's not something that people want to put themselves in line to get. I mean, just to scam somebody, you know, there is actual um, need there. So how do we move toward getting people to have a sense of um, how deep the problem is. You've explained what, and I think in very clear terms, about what rent means and what, you know, how it trickles down then to kids. And I think when we think about hungry kids, it strikes a different note, I'm sorry to say, than it does with adults, even though adults have to feed them. Um, and how do you think that that either helps or hinders people get an understanding of really where we are when we talk about, as you would say, food insecurity, I'd say, how many people are hungry in Massachusetts? Yeah, I mean, yes, certainly childhood hunger, um, you know, you know, I have two small children. It's it's something that people um, can relate to and are worried about. But children live in households, right? And if we really want to address this issue, we have to take a two-generational approach. We know that there are a lot of families in the Commonwealth, the parents are going without food in order to make sure that their kids can eat, which is, you know, any parent would do that. But, but we're not solving the problem that way. You know, at Project Bread, we we know that there is more than enough food to feed everybody. Lack of food is is not the issue. It's making sure people are able to access it in a dignifying way. They're able to access it reliably and consistently. And that's one of the big reasons that we focus on school meals, because school meals are an access point that are reliable and consistent. And when it's available to every single student, then the stigma goes away. Okay. Uh, Rep. Vargas, y'all just passed the in the legislature the Student Opportunity Bill, um, which is separate from the bill that we're talking about at breakfast after the bell. Will this, will that bill have any overlap or impact on what we're discussing here in the breakfast yeah. after the bell? It's a, it's a perfect compliment. But mm-hmm. b- before that, I just want to mention uh, something related to what Aaron just mentioned, which is that you know, there are all these systemic issues that cause food insecurity mm-hmm. in the first place. And so it sort of requires a two-track two track approach in that while we address housing, while we address education, mm-hmm. while we address all these systemic failures, we also can't ignore the fact that kids need food today, tomorrow, right? And so that's a void that uh, folks like Project Bread, the Greater Boston Food Bank, so many other organizations 
are filling that immediate need. And we have to keep in mind that this is a tr two-track uh, solution to immediately solving the food insecurity right now while also looking at the systems-wide approach. Um, on the Student Opportunity Act, uh, I'm so glad you mentioned that um, I think there's been a lot of talk about how Massachusetts is number one for some in our educational system, uh, that uh, at the top of the rankings, we're, we're usually there. Um, but uh, when we look at equity, we're usually at the bottom. Um, and I think, you know, the, the great thing about this bill is that uh, it reaffirms a value that we have essentially stated in the Student Opportunity Act, which is that in Massachusetts, we can't have educational excellence without educational equity. And so this bill complements that in a really strong way to ensure that every single child has a good shot at doing well in our academic system. Um, and the foundation to that is, is a full stomach and being ready to learn and not hungry to eat. May I ask, um, for you personally, was there something that moved you to co-sponsor this bill? Um, Aaron has personal story, but I, I just wonder. I mean, there are many uh, issues that you can support, but this one is a particular one that you've been focused on. Yeah, I mean, there, there are all sorts of uh, stories um, and anecdotes that, that I can uh, call upon, but I think the, the one that I always think about the most is I come from a very large Dominican-American family, and my cousins and I grew up uh, really close, more like brothers, and our lives were totally different. Um, because of the uh, stability in, in, or the lack of stability in each of our homes. Um, and one of the things that I saw them struggle with was, was food insecurity um, and the stigma aspect as well in that, um, you know, they actually were the cool kids on campus and I was the nerdy kid. Mm. Um, but uh, they never wanted to participate in uh, the free breakfast program that was available to them. Um, and so that is certainly something that had stuck with me from, from, from my childhood in Haverhill. And as somebody who was, you know, in high school, only 10 years ago. Hmm. Um, you know, it's, yeah, it's just still, remind everybody you're young. <laughs> just go ahead. <laughs> um, it, it's, it's vivid in my mind still. You know, it, it's, this stuff is real. You mm -hmm. know, we just want to make sure that kids can eat. And um, finally, I would, I would ask, um, and I, maybe it's a little schmaltzy, but I think around the holiday times, you know, when there's so much availability of lots of food for most of us, we're, if we're fortunate, and for most of the people we know, again, if we're fortunate, um, it can be a time that is a good reminder to people of those who are without. And so I ask each of you to make the case for both the bill and and for working towards um, just resolving the hunger issue in Massachusetts. I'll start with you, Andy Vargas. Yeah, I think the bottom line is, is that in one of the richest uh, states in the country, we should make sure that everybody has access to food. It's the most uh, basic principle that we can all agree to, I would hope, uh, and that if we want to start to address any of the other systemic issues, we got to make sure that people can eat to make it to tomorrow. Um, and so as we address those systemic issues, make sure that your neighbors, your friends, um, seniors in your community, there's a lot of food insecurity in our senior population as well, um, that everybody can make it till tomorrow um, for, for, hearty, for a hearty meal and nutrition that is necessary for us to keep up the fight uh, while we address these larger systemic issues that uh, we also should have some urgency on. Aaron McAleer? Yeah, I would just agree with that and also say this is a solvable problem. We have more than enough food here in Massachusetts and the United States to make sure that nobody goes without. Um, and so we have a responsibility, especially for our youngest uh, people in Massachusetts. Um, and the holidays definitely are a difficult time. I was in a school up in Salem yesterday, and the teachers were saying to me that some of the students weren't excited about Thanksgiving because they knew that they were going to be going without. And so I would also just urge any families that are struggling to put food on the table to call Project Bread at one 800 645 58333. We have a food source hotline um, and we also do an online chat and we can help you access food within your own community. All right. Well, um, it's something to keep in mind. And 
if uh, assuming that the breakfast after the bell passes, when would it be effective? Because it would be before you said next year. Um, that's 2020 uh, before the Senate and presumably get the signature of the governor. When would when would then it go into effect? So we would hope for the 2021 school year. OK. Um, and so that that would be our hope. All right. So that's a year before it would take effect. So. So there's a lot of other um, commitment that would be involved up until that point, certainly. Yes. And Project Bread is ready to support any school that is looking to take it on even before um, it becomes effective. And I just really want to thank Representative Vargas for his leadership on this issue. Um, and I also want to acknowledge the Senate, um, Senator Sal Domenico, who's been a champion in the Senate side, and, and um, Senate President Karen Spilka, who um, actually passed this this bill on her first day as Senate president. So wow. we are we're optimistic about its passage and its um, signature by the governor and, and really excited to see Massachusetts make sure that those 150,000 kids have access to breakfast. Okay. Well, I hope the next time that we meet that that definitely um, has happened. Thank you both for joining me. Thank you. Hopefully we'll have breakfast next time, right? Yes, exactly. (laughs) Aaron McAleer is the president of Project Bread, a Massachusetts-based anti-hunger not-for-profit. And Andy Vargas is the Massachusetts State Representative for the 3rd Essex District and co-sponsor of the Breakfast After the Bell bill. Coming up, a historical novel details one of the greatest achievements of abolitionist and Union Army spy Harriet Tubman, an account known by few. And what were Tubman's connections here in Boston? That's next. This is a special Encore edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. Callie Crossley, and this is an encore edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And now for the part of the show we call Lanyap, that's Creole for something extra. Under cover of darkness on June 2, 1863, two Union ships stole up the Cumbie River in a mission that would liberate over 750 slaves from South Carolina plantations. What became known as the Cumbie Ferry Raid was the first major U.S. military operation led by a woman, Harriet Tubman. The same Harriet Tubman, whose remarkable life as a spy, abolitionist, nurse, and cook included connections to Boston. Many know her name, but few know her story. Author and historian Elizabeth Cobbs connects the dots in her latest historical novel about one of Harriet Tubman's greatest achievements. Joining me in the studio, Dr. Elizabeth Cobbs, Melbourne G. Glasscock Professor of History at Texas A&M University. She's the author of several historical fiction novels, the latest of which is The Tubman Command, a dramatized account of Harriet Tubman's activities around the Cumbie Ferry Raid. Hello, Dr. Cobbs. Hello. Also with me, Lamurchie Frazier, Director of Education and Interpretation at the Museum of African American History, Boston. Welcome, Lamurchie. Hello, Connie. And joining me from the studios of WESA in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, Dr. Etta Fields Black, Associate Professor of History at Carnegie Mellon University. Hello, Dr. Fields Black. Hello. Well, I'm glad to have all of you. I've made this journey many times. And I've never lost a passenger. You know how much longer? 
And what I do know. My baby, she'll freeze. Liberty don't come free. You got to fight for it. That's from the trailer of the 2016 film Carry Me Home, which follows the Ennals family's escape from slavery through Harriet Tubman's Underground Railroad, the railroad in which she was a major conductor, Dr. Cobbs. Um, You have written this historical novel showcasing one of her greatest achievements, but really telling her whole story, because you say she's the greatest patriot that people don't know about. Why do you say that? You know, I've written a lot of books on American history. I've taught it for 30 years. And I started this project, you know, knowing what we all know about Harriet Tubman, which is kind of what you can fit on a cocktail napkin. We all keep repeating the refrain, you know, this major conductor on the Underground Railroad. And yet she was so much more. We really have no other female patriot in American history who matches her for length of service in perilous missions at risk of her own life with such consequential results for the cause of freedom and for the definition of America itself. There is simply no other woman really in American history who rises to her stature. And that became really clear to me as I was researching this novel. So the novel is based, as I said, on the Cumbie Ferry Raid, which just, you know, the basic statistics about it are so incredible. Going behind (laughs) Confederate lines as a woman, as a black woman in the dark in the night, when you were formerly enslaved and people are looking for you. That is a lot. <laughs> that's a lot, but that's what she'd been doing for 11 years. You under, you have to understand, she comes into the war with skills that almost no one else has. She's been going behind enemy lines for 11 years, which is what the Mason-Dixon line was for black people in America. So she'd been doing that, not getting captured, enduring all those risks. So she has a kind of special training. Uh, in fact, Robert E. Lee was, you know, said, you know, the, the major source of intelligence— you know, to the enemy are the people on the plantations. So she was adept. She'd been doing it. She'd gone back for those people. And then she had this weird thing. You're absolutely right. We always think, how could a woman do this? But for Harriet Tubman, being a woman was one of her best disguises. <laughs> Nobody expects a puny woman to do anything. And she was only five feet tall. She was so tiny, you know, a big wind could have blown her away. So she had extraordinary savvy and a kind of experience not only with clandestine warfare, but also with leading men. In other words, she'd had to get men out. Men had had to follow her in very, very precious few, if any women in the middle 19th century could say that. Thank you so much. So, Lamurchi, her ties to Boston are at the highest level. She was interacting with the governor. Once she escaped to freedom, she really made use of her time above the Mason-Dixon line and below. Yes, she did. She was uh, a fierce force to be reckoned with, and uh, Governor Andrew hired her in 1862 to serve as a nurse, a cook, and a spy, sending her ahead of the 54th Regiment to South Carolina to make way for uh, and negotiate and cultivate relationships that would enable them to be successful as they are met by her in 1863 when they go in July. So she is here. She is with the abolitionists. She is speaking with those who are strategizing through their networking to have a successful stab at ending slavery. And she was very much involved in that. And her reconnaissance offered the generals in the Union Army some very strategic understanding of how to move. And she was extraordinary in that sense. And she's often labeled as being illiterate, 
But I beg to differ that she had an extraordinary literacy that many of us wish that we had. So here in Boston, she is recognized by the circles of abolition. She's here when the 54th marches up Beacon Hill. Uh, seen by a thousand revelers and is uh, going on to Boston Harbor to shake the hands of Frederick Douglass. We note that Harriet had a home here in Boston. We note that she, after the Civil War, comes to establish a home for indigent women. So she's really particularly critical to what happens in Boston. And I want you to just pause for a moment in the storytelling of Harriet Tubman to let people know who the 54th were, because that's our pride and joy from Massachusetts, and I don't assume that everybody knows that. This is Fraser, Director of Education and Interpretation at the Museum of African American History. The 54th were. There is a raised sculpture to Robert Gould Shaw and the Massachusetts Volunteer Regiment of the 54th Regiment. That is the uh, first regiment of black men to be raised in the North uh, to fight in the Civil War. It was a recruitment effort and a convincing effort of the Boston community and others to appeal to President Lincoln to raise this uh, regiment of men who are then offered the opportunity to be some of those who, f- who strike the blow against slavery and noted in the uh, Emancipation Proclamation issued January 1st, 1863, on the margins where Secretary Stanton says that there shall be this regiment raised. So there's great hoopla. There is a Camp Miggs campground training that takes place from January through uh, July of 1863, where these men muster their talents, their, their might, and understand the mission ahead. And, you know, I think this this is another fact that a lot of people don't know, because I don't think people connected Harriet Tubman, I certainly didn't, with the 54th. And I know both their stories, but didn't know that connection. So that's a very important thing that comes together because of her work, but also because, as you say, of this greatest achievement and her military uh, engagement. Her, actually, she was acting as a military person, uh, a soldier, uh, Dr. Cobbs. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. She um, received a military pension after the Civil War. Now, she had to fight for for 30 years. The irony, Callie, is that men who served under her, she was the commander of a troop of scouts, and those scouts went to the U.S. Congress and got pensions as scouts within a short time after the war. She had to wait 30 years, and she was ended up with a pension of a nurse, which is, of course, half a man's yeah. pay. But, yes, she was also engaged, um, the particular group she she led up the Cumbie River where the 2nd South Carolina Volunteers, and as Lamurchie said, they actually precede the 54th Massachusetts in being mustered. Um, so the crazy thing is, is that she sails back from this incredible mission, and they sail back, limp back into Beaufort, South Carolina, as the 54th is sailing up the river. So these two groups then combine and are a part of this great assault on Fort Wagner that, of course— is the is the pride of of that part of American history? That's my guest, of Dr. Elizabeth Cobb. She's the Melbourne G. Glasscock Professor of History at Texas A&M University and the author of the historical fiction novel *The Tubman Command*, which is a dramatized account of Harriet Tubman's activities around the Cumbie Ferry Raid. Now, over to you, Dr. Etta Fields Black. You were a consultant. You're operating from a nonfiction basis about um, the the history uh, in the area of the Cumbie Ferry Raid with a particular focus on uh, the rice plantations. Uh, People may not know that that raid took place in and among these rice plantations. It's, you know, swampy. It's 
I mean, I just can't even imagine. It's cold. It's dark. And so your work is looking at those folks who were enslaved from Western Africa who were brought to work those plantations. These are the very people, Dr. Etta Fields Black, that uh, Harriet Tubman intends to free uh, through this raid. Yes, the raid took place, my research shows, on nine rice plantations in what is today the Beaufort and Colleton County areas of South Carolina. These were some of the wealthiest planters in in South Carolina and up until 1850s in, in the U.S. South. Um, the Hayward family, the Middleton family in particular, owned plantations along this river. And it's pretty amazing that in six hours, more than 730 people could be freed. And what I'm finding is that, as you can imagine, many of the people on the plantations who were freed that night were related. Mm -hmm. And there were lots of relationships between the plantations. So when historians have talked about a mysterious communication system, um, it was probably freedom seekers calling their kin and forewarning their kin that the steamboats, that the gunboats were coming, and that when the uninterrupted steam whistle blew, that everyone was to go to the docks. And so there's some very interesting relationships across plantations where we see people, husbands and wives, parents and children, siblings, cousins, um, escaping together on June 2nd, 1863. Now, Dr. Fields Black was, at this point, Harriet Tubman, known as Moses, uh, a conductor on the Underground Railroad, so well known that when she entered into this scary journey to to um, spy and get the information for the Union uh, officers, that the folks who were there enslaved would trust her and what she said was going to happen. You know, that's hard to say. The sources do not tell us that they knew of her history in the Underground Railroad. But I think the sources are pretty clear that enslaved people and freed people in Beaufort and enslaved people in the plantations trusted her um, and saw them as part of their community. Um, Dr. Cobbs's book, I think, does a beautiful job of dramatizing a scene in which Harriet Tubman um, attends a, a ring shout on a plantation outside of Buford. And a ring shout is a religious ceremony um, that is done by the Gullah Geechee, and it's people, uh, you can't call it a dance, it's a shuffle around in a circle during a prayer ceremony. Um, so shuffling, singing, clapping, um, until it reaches a fevered pitch, uh, as only a black church can, um, and drumming as well. So these kinds of ceremonies happen frequently um, in the Low Country, and there are uh, northern teachers who describe the ceremonies and describe being invited to the ceremonies. Tubman is actually invited to participate in the ceremony. And so I think that's a key piece of evidence that we have that, you know, the enslaved people outside of Buford, people who are still on the plantations, knew her, welcomed her, and thought of her as part of their community in ways that they didn't uh, feel about other Northern volunteers, including Charlotte Fortin, who was a black, a freed black teacher from the Philadelphia area. Um, do you think of her as in the same way that Dr. Cobbs has described uh, this a patriot who has gone unappreciated, uh, perhaps to this point? I do. I do. And I think that we, 
Um, as Americans know very little about Harriet Tubman's Civil War service, I think that her her history in the Underground Railroad is remarkable, and the number of people she freed over those years is remarkable. Um, but in Beaufort, South Carolina, we're talking over 730 people freed in six hours without loss of life. And I think there's nothing uh, that compares to that, uh, to a woman leading a group of spies and scouts to free that many people in such a short period of time. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. And here with me are Dr. Elizabeth Cobbs, author and professor of history at Texas A&M University, Lamerchi Fraser, director of education and interpretation at the Museum of African American History, Boston, and Dr. Etta Fields Black, you just heard her, associate professor at Carnegie Mellon University. We're discussing Dr. Cobbs's new historical novel, The Tubman Command, which is a dramatized account of Harriet Tubman's role leading the Cumbie Ferry raid during the Civil War. Um, she had a particular way of uh, leading people um, once she got out and went back for folks, and this was quite dangerous. So I wanted to play this clip. This is from the NBC's 1978 TV miniseries, A Woman Called Moses. And this is Harriet Tubman, played by Cicely Tyson, instructing some of her Underground Railroad passengers on how to follow her. Everybody, who here? You the tassel, okay? Can you follow behind me? All right. My hand goes up like this. I mean, stop. Do like this. Means follow me. All right. Let's hurry. I wanted to point out uh, that many people may not know that she went back to free a lot of her relatives, her parents particularly. Um, that first clip that I played when she went back to get the Ennels family, she ended up getting them because she went back for her sister who had died in the interim by the time she had, you know, made her way back through all of the scary territory um, and uh, found out, you know, when she arrived that she had passed away. So I, I um, at Lamerchi, the story, which is what Dr. Cobbs is really excited about telling people, the story is so exciting and dramatic. Yes, it is. A, it's a major motion picture <laughs> at this point. <laughs> the way and, I see and we're it. getting a new <laughs> one, by the way. <laughs> yes. uh, there's one coming with Cynthia uh, Arrivo starring in it. You know, wonderful, yes. wonderful. Mm-hmm. And hopefully, from uh, Dr. Cobbs' book, we will get some graphic novels mm-hmm. that tell the story that reaches another targeted population. But when we look at the life of Harriet Tubman and her uh, uh, ingenuity. Uh, the, uh, she understood what it would take to uh, to gain the kind of respect that she needed to do these things. And one of them was her owning of property. She uh, purchased property in New York, and which she then goes back to pay, place her parents on that property so that she can care for them in their demise. Um, I think that she was a strategist extraordinary as she uh, goes and maps out the the byways and highways of the Underground Railroad in trying to locate members of her family and be involved with the abolitionists, uh, particularly being um, conversant with William Still in Philadelphia, um, understanding what his book, The Underground Railroad, in its documentation could give us and give her as um, locating part members of her family to go back to get. Um, 
one of her, her strategies in, in terms of even being in South Carolina was she was an, an entrepreneur, if you will. She was selling her pies and using her skills as a cook to gain the confidence of the people in that who were going to be involved in that. In fact, raid. that's how uh, Dr. Cobb starts her book. <laughs> yeah, uh, uh, with her work as a baker. Yeah, yeah. which I don't I don't think I understood. She was baking yeah. gingerbread. Yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. And by the way, Lamert, I don't want you to uh, uh, forget to say that there is a stop on the Underground Railroad connected to the museum. Yes, that's it, right. Yeah, uh, there is in the south end of Boston a location um, that is near the sculpture. Harriet Tubman step on board on Columbus Avenue. The um, the one of the side streets is where her uh, a marked plaque is that locates her in Boston, where she lived and operated. Um, we understand that her her uh, her prowess uh, and understanding of the uh, need for uh, indigent women to be taken care of had also uh, allowed her to. Uh, present a home for indigent women that is now USIS or the Harriet Tubman House. Oh, I on didn't realize that, it. Oh, that's Columbus why it's named Harriet. Oh, that's duh. why. <laughs> it's named the Harriet Tubman House. See, I learned something, Dr. Cobb, sitting so, right here. <laughs> so in her senior year, she was uh, honoring the plight of women who may, may not be able to take care of themselves. So her, her strategies are enormously encouraging in terms of what you can and cannot do. And I think one of the recognizers of her talents was uh, Frederick Douglass, who wrote a letter back to her when she appealed to him to give her a letter of recommendation for her biography that was being prepared after the Civil War. He tells her that it is I who should be seeking a re- recommendation from you. It is you. High praise who is, indeed. Yes. So um, in, in her recognition as a, um, a very strong woman, but her her humanness and her ability to overcome obstacles is extraordinary. Now, children need that yeah. to understand mm-hmm. how we can progress in the 21st century. Dr. Cobb, let's pick up with something that Lamerchie Frazier uh, from the Museum of African American History here in Boston has mentioned, which is her humanness. One of the things you said you wanted to address is that there are certain ways of looking at Harriet Tubman, which I had heard was that she was really tough and that, you know, she said more than one time, I'm not leaving anybody here, so don't change your mind because I don't leave anybody behind, which meant she kill you if you decided halfway through you're not going. But you said the other side of her, of her warmth and kindness, never has actually been been brought to, to the fore. I think it really hasn't. I think that because she's such an icon, we tend to treat her as an icon. She's up on a pedestal. She's a statue. But, you know, marble is cold. And if you make somebody into a statue, it, it does two things. First of all, it robs them of of really their accomplishment in a way. In other words, to say she felt no fear is to mean she wasn't very brave because the definition of bravery is to do something despite your fears. So she was a human being and a wonderful, She, you know, Thomas Wentworth Higginson, one of her sponsors here in Boston, said he knew of nobody who could make people laugh like Harriet Tubman did on stage. She was a great singer. She, Yes, she family was, I think, in so many ways, key to understanding her psychological motivation. We were just talking about that. She not only went back for her parents, she went back for all of her brothers. She She was one of nine children. So imagine that. So just Mm. think about what that means. She had four sisters and four brothers. She personally got every one of her brothers out of slavery, and every one of her sisters was lost. So imagine becoming an only daughter and then getting your parents out. So part of what I want to explore in the novel are those things that, you know, that make her not lesser, that make her bigger for being human. 
Uh, and that challenge us as humans. We can't go, oh, well, of course, that was easy for Harriet Tubman because she was Harriet Tubman. No, she was this wonderful, young, vulnerable, brave, tough as nails, but very, very human person, you know, tiny, tiny woman, but extraordinary spirit. And we haven't discussed her her disability, which she was hit in the head when she was 12 years old with a metal weight, which left her with these spells that now modern doctors believe is epilepsy, but nobody would know. Um, and so she was at risk at any point of just going into a spell. So she could be in the midst of, you know, leading people out um, in the most dangerous way and could have passed out. It didn't happen, or at least it didn't happen enough to um, endanger her being able to bring people out safely. But that was something, Dr. Cobbs. Yeah, you know, <laughs> think of it this. We've all, we all know or have heard of disabled veterans. You know, people come out of war situations grievously injured. This is a person who at risk of her life, enters as a disabled person the entire time she works on the Underground Railroad, the entire time she's serving in the U.S. Army, in the Union Army. She has this extreme, you know, a head injury that troubles her for her entire rest of her life. So, you know, that's real courage. That's the face of courage. All right. So here we are with Harriet Tubman's name being bandied about a lot now, not because of any of our conversation, this kind of conversation, but because she was supposed to be on uh, the face of the $20 bill. But as we know, the uh, President Trump and by virtue of his um, Treasury Secretary Stephen Mnuchin has said that is going to be postponed. It was supposed to be tied to next year's 19th uh, uh, centennial of of for when the from when women got to vote, um, and now, uh, who knows? Um, the New York Times most recently did a piece saying the the design is ready to go, but it really would take political will. So we're at a time where people are interested in her story and are feeling um, those who know a little bit about her very proud that she was the one who was selected for this, but also pretty um, determined to try to make that happen. Yeah, you know, historians have gotten together. I was involved with a group last summer. We were trying to get Secretary Mnuchin to move on it. Well, we Doris Kearns Goodwin right here from this area and Ken Burns and a whole list of Pulitzer Prize-winning historians and biographers of, of Harriet Tubman. We all signed a letter to Mnuchin. Um, sadly, we we didn't even get an answer. Mm. We did not get a single, just even an acknowledgement that 130 prominent American historians had written requesting this. Um, and so it's, it's sad because, you know, Harriet Tubman, by the way, wasn't chosen even by us historians. She, That's right. It was chosen by a popular online vote of Americans, including school Led children. Led by a student. Led yeah, by a student yes, and yes. 600,000 people yeah. in a runaway vote chose her. So, I, you know, I wasn't even involved in that. But and it was only by researching this book I, I come to realize in this multi-layered way and the way that Lamerchie's talking about here, too, is that she not only served before the Civil War in this incredibly monumental role, she has this tremendous role, as Dr. Fields Black has shown, during the Civil War. And after the Civil War, she invents social work. <laughs> I mean, she, you know, at the home, Harriet Tubman Home for the Aged in Auburn, New York. So she's a social worker, really, up through uh, almost to her death. So she's a pioneer in many different ways in American history. And it's just extraordinary that um, that our government has decided that no woman deserves to be on the U.S. currency, and in particular, Harriet Tubman. 
Is there something that uh, one thing that each of you would say, Dr. Uh, Fields Black, I'm going to start with you, um, that probably people, which we've established that most people don't know her story, would be surprised to know about her, um, which just underscores what you've just said, Dr. Cobbs, that she, you know, is an icon, a patriot uh, deserving of this honor. Um, Dr. Fields Black, what, what do you think that uh, one thing that you can highlight about Harriet Tubman that probably most people don't know? I'm not sure that people know the enormous risk she took. Um, First of all, in going back uh, to free her siblings, her parents, and others in the Maryland Eastern Shore, and then coming south and going behind enemy lines, that everything she did once she left the plantation where she was enslaved, she did with a price on her head. You know, and so to risk her own personal freedom in order to lead the nation in realizing its ideals, I think is something that is underrecognized by many people. Uh, Lamerti Frazier, what do you think should be highlighted about her that most people don't know? I think that um, along with others like Frederick Douglass, uh, Harriet was also concerned, though clandestinely most of her life is conducted on this Underground Railroad um, network, that she also understood public image in mm-hmm. terms of her having her photograph done mm-hmm. and made and a drawing of her in her uniform as she uh, changes fashion um, and the uh, the involvement of women in the Civil War. After the Civil War, when she gets married, there's a photograph that has been recently uh, uncovered by the National Museum of uh, African American Art and Culture that shows her in a lovely uh, gown and that this idea of the image and integrity of uh, those who had been formerly enslaved and now raised into public uh, note was was uh, a terrific and enormous um, uh, uh, force to help people understand the humanity of uh, black people against those images that had been caricatures and mimicry, that the power of art to be able to do that was within her grasp and her strategies. And we should note that she was married to John Tubman, who was a free man early on, went back to get him out to bring him. He wouldn't go. He married somebody else. When she did marry with this dress that you're talking about and all of the celebration, it was a guy 22 years her <laughs> your junior. I'm pretty impressed by that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, Dr. Dr. Yeah. Cox, what is it that uh, now that you've uh, you know had the, uh, the advantage of doing all this uh, research for your fictional and dramatic presentation of her story that you really think needs to be highlighted that, you've, that, that folks probably don't know? Well, in a way, you touch on it. Um, Harriet Tubman was motivated by love. She was motivated by love of her family, love of her country, um, and, of course, you know, love of her husband, the, the first who abandoned her and broke her heart and, you know, 25 pieces, and then the man whom she married later. And, yes, you're right, The first, her first husband was a free man of color who had other choices, and his second husband was 20 years younger, a nice, hot, tall, strapping, six-foot tall man. So she was, she was a, a romantic figure, and, and that's part of what I try to honor as well in my novel, because what's a good novel without a love story? <laughs> I get that. Um, where is her place in history, Dr. Etta Fields Black? Um, I know that's a big question because there's lots of folks, but um, where is her place in American history? Where is her place in black history? Where is her place in um, uh, female history? Where is her place as you see her? 
I think her place is as America's first female military leader um, who led the largest slave revolt, can we say that? Who led the largest um, escape, if you will, of enslaved people without any loss of life. And I think that makes her America's greatest patriot. Uh, Lamerchi, where is her place in history as you see it? I think that uh, she shows us a fully orbed life that begins in enslavement and goes on to that of being a um, a philanthropist, if you will, at the end of her life, and that she knew the importance of staging these um, opportunities that she took the initiative to um, to be important with. And um, as a suffragist, she was also involved in this idea of women having the right to say something. In one of her quotes, she says that one of the two most important things to her had to do with liberty or death, and she would have one of them. And um, her patriotism comes through with that as we ring the words that are some of the founding principles in America. So her attachment to this idea and commitment to uh, democratic principles and understanding freedom, I think, is what we need to highlight and herald from her experience. All right. Where is her place in history, Dr. Elizabeth Cobbs? I think she's our heroine. And I think that that's important for Americans to understand that as she represents all American women, as we hope she will sooner than later on the $20 bill, that um, that she's, she's a part of us, we're a part of her. And I think that that's where we need to move as a country. Well, I thank you all for joining me for this very rich conversation. I would note that Harriet Tubman lived to the ripe old age of 93, and uh, it was only because illness took her out at that point. She had pneumonia, but she probably would have gone on even further. So thank you so much for uh, joining me in this discussion of America's patriot, Harriet Tubman. Thank you. Thank you. Dr. Elizabeth Cobbs is the Melbourne G. Glasscock Professor of History at Texas A&M University. She's the author of historical fiction novels, including The Tubman Command, her latest. Lamerchi Fraser is the Director of Education and Interpretation at the Museum of African American History, Boston. And Dr. Etta Fields Black is an Associate Professor of History at Carnegie Mellon University. That's it for this week's Encore Show. Find us on the web at WGBH.org, News Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, and available for downloads wherever you get your podcasts. Under the Radar with Callie Crossley is a production of WGBH, produced by Hannah Ubley and Francisca Monahan, and engineered by Dave Goodman and Doug Sugars. Our theme music is Fish and Chips by We Are Two Saxies, Grace Kelly and Leo P. See you here at 6 p.m. next Sunday. I'm Callie Crossley. Thanks for listening.